Father, we come to you and we praise you. You are the God who has revealed yourself to us. This morning we're looking at Exodus 3 in the burning bush and it's a reminder that you, O God, are the sovereign one who cares so deeply for your people. And another fire came in Acts chapter two with the birth of the church, which we just sang about and reminded that once again, your glory is seen in our midst and we exalt you and thank you. Father, we don't deserve anything but judgment. We're no different than Moses. We are fugitives of the law. We were rebellious, seeking to do things our way, and you saw fit to enter time and space and call us to you, and we thank you. Guide us as we go to the text today in Exodus 3. Thank you for this glorious passage. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Exodus 3, it is so good to be back with you. Thank you for the time away. My lovely wife celebrating 15 years. She's put up with me, yes. Yeah, I know. She deserves a, a round of applause and a whole lot more. That's why I took her to consignment shops, so it was great. As you turn to Exodus 3, it seems like a lifetime since Moses was in Pharaoh's household. It's been 40 years. I wonder if there were days where he couldn't even remember the sound of his mother's voice or the face of his siblings. 40 years. Yeah, the text doesn't tell us, but we don't even know if Jochebed has died at this point. His mother and his dad. In fact, I, I suspect there's days that have been transpiring that Egypt doesn't even come up in his vocabulary. It's been so long. Life is scarred from one fatal mistake. It slammed the door of incredible opportunities for Moses. Life is scarred, dreams shattered, and relationships are severed. In Exodus 3 opens, the text says, Now Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of God to Horeb. What are you doing, Moses? Shepherding is beneath an Egyptian for sure. Canaanites did it, the Israelites did it, but what in the world? What are you doing way out here in the desert, in the mountain of Mount Horeb? And in this passage, one of the, I would argue one of the most powerful chapters of all of Scripture, God enters time and space. And he, he meets Moses here. And watch as we go through. It's really a two-part sermon. Next week, uh, Michael's going to look at the, the chapter 4 as we have this discourse because Three times God will commission Moses and Moses will raise five set of objections. Two of them we'll find here in the text today, the last three and four. And, and you, you watch, Moses, his rhetoric is discombobulated and God is very succinct in saying, no, this is where we're going. 
One commentator states that each time in which the objection is fully met, a new one springs up unconnected with the latter. No visible gain is ever made. In the end, he, Moses, is trapped and his real doubt emerges. So watch this as we go through the text. What you're also going to see in this interchange, it shows that God is deeply concerned for his people. A God who keeps his word and a God who demonstrates unbelievable grace. So let's look at the text. We've just read verse 1. We'll read the next five verses. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is seen as the same as God. They're approached the same. And I would argue this is a pre-incarnate Jesus that is appearing to Moses. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a, a bush. He looked and the bush was ablaze with fire, but it was not being consumed. So Moses thought, good idea, I'll turn aside to see this amazing thing, this indescribable sight. Why does the bush not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he turned aside, see how the interchange between the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Reminds me of Acts 9 when God's, Jesus says to Saul, later Paul, Saul, Saul. When your name's mentioned twice by God, you better sit up and take nourishment, right? And Moses said, here am I. And God said, do not come near here. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That'll be repeated four times in chapter three. So watch. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the text tells us. Let's look at this encounter that God has with Moses. And if you're following along, you've got notes there. If you're following a line, they're available as well. Here you have Moses leading a flock to a remote region of Mount Horeb. This is later Mount Sinai. This is where the Ten Commandments will be given. And you have appearance of the angel of the Lord. Think about it. <laughs> Here's this lowly shepherd, a fugitive, worse yet, a murderer. Moses. Uh, Moses is a nobody. In fact, it's not even his flock. Did you see verse 1? Look, who, who owns the sheep? The Bobos don't belong to Moses. It says they belong to Jethro. He doesn't have anything. And God's unexpected visit to this shepherd in this remote part, the Moabite, excuse me, in the Middle East, demonstrates that the Lord can show up wherever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and to whomever he pleases, right? This morning, you can say, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, yes, he showed up to me. I was age four. My parents uh, were concerned, actually five, my parents were concerned that I was the only one in the youth group who hadn't been saved yet. They were concerned I wasn't part of the elect. But uh, I also remember at age 13 at a church camp, you know, uh, this little teenager. And I, I remember it was as if God had just stated, yeah, I'm calling you to full-time ministry. And I went out with the camp counselor on top of this stack of wood and we prayed together. That's, that's God appearing to us, isn't it? And here he is appearing to Moses in this burning bush, which is revealing his power 
and his glory. But here's the problem. <laughs> there, there's no guarantee Moses going back to Egypt, which we're going to see, uh, who's going to receive him if they even remember him? It's been 40 years ago. Most people who knew Moses, they're dead. And if they do know him, well, he was the coward who committed a heinous crime and then uh, fled. And yet God calls Moses. He knows him very well, doesn't he? Moses, Moses. Notice the text tells us, he says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. This is the first reference to holy in all of Scripture. The term means to be set apart. One scholar, I love what he writes, aptly observes that if the Lord can take dirt and make it holy, he can do that with men <laughs> and women, can't he? Holy, holy. It's, it's how God was described in Isaiah 6. They didn't say lovely, lovely, or kind, kind. No. The, the, the angels that surrounded God and his presence declared him holy. First Samuel 2, there was no one holy like the Lord. And in Hosea 11, the Lord states, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. And here's Moses. <laughs> he, he, he meets this one called the Lord, and, and, and we see this in verse 4, and the Lord says, Moses, here am I. He says, do not come here. Take your sandals off, your shoes. Scholars wonder, why did he tell him to take off his shoes? Was it made from a carcass, a dead animal, and that shouldn't be in the presence of the Lord? Shoes protect. You don't need protection before God. No, I think the real issue is they're unclean. I mean, he's been taking care of bobos, right? The sheep. Uh, he, he's tracked in the dirt. That's why even by the time of Jesus in, the, in, the, in the, that part of the world, they're still washing feet. Even today, the bottom of the shoes are offensive in a Middle Eastern culture. Do you remember the, the Saddam Hussein statue that had toppled and they were all standing out beating the, the statue with their shoes? Why? The sign of disgrace to the, the, the rep, that which represents Saddam Hussein. And, and the Lord's saying, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground in my presence. And then notice what we see here in verse 7. This is what the Lord has for Moses. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. We saw this in the latter part of chapter 2, and Michael highlighted that in his sermon last week. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I have come down to deliver them from the land of the Egyptians. Notice there's two things. God sees their plight. Secondly, he's going to deliver them and bring them up from a land to a land that is both good and large to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's goat's milk and most likely date honey. In the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzites, or you could call it the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, right? And now, indeed, the cry of the Israelites has come to me. I have seen how severely the Egyptians oppress them. So now go. This is one of four times Moses will be commanded to go in this, these two chapters. And I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God commissions Moses. And interesting, before he gets to the instruction, God appear he, he identifies who he is doesn't he let me Moses let you see a little of my glory before we do this 
Let's address who I am. I'm the holy God, the one that is the father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now let's get down to business, right? And we, we see two things in this crying out. The statement of misery upon the Israelites. It's interesting, the text never tells us that they're praying to God. They just cry out. There's no religious life that's being conveyed in chapter 2 or in chapter 3 of the Israelites. But God is not only purposing to bring Israel out of Egypt, he's also purposing to bring them into another land. Now, what does this tell us about the Lord in verses 7 through 10? What can we take away from this? There's several things. First of all, the Lord is a personal God. Did you notice how he described the people, the Israelites? He said, they're my people. God is intimately involved. You say, well, that's nice. You let him suffer for a couple generations. Are you, are you, how, God's still in charge. He knows. And that leads us to the second. He's an all-knowing God. He's aware of all things. He's an intentional God. He's got a plan. And he is a faithful God. He brings up covenant. That which I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will keep. One Puritan writer says, at times an individual's faith may fail him or her, but God's faithfulness never fails, right? And that's the idea here, that God is in charge, and he says, I'm bringing you to a land, and notice he describes the land flowing with milk and honey. That phrase is used 20 times in the Old Testament, and every time it occurs, it's in conjunction with the divine promise God has made to Israel. I will keep my word. This is my promise. And so he tells Moses, go. This is what you will do. It's interesting when God says in verse 10, so now go and I will send you, the phrase is really conveying a business uh, partnership. We're, we're gonna do this together is what God is saying to Moses. Unlike any other business venture, this one will succeed. It's, it's on the reputation of God and where it rests. And this is why, again, God will repeat to Moses in the latter part of there of verse 10, I'm a God who keeps my promises, I'm a God who's compassionate, and I'm a God who is all-knowing. Did you notice that the Lord never addresses Moses' hesitations. Moses has to be scared spitless, and we're gonna see that, and all that comes through. But the Lord is directing all his attention, Moses' attention, to the Lord. This is who I am, this is what I'm going to do, I will be with you, this is how it's going to occur. And when we face those insurmountable trials or tasks, remember, your God that we serve, our God, is one who keeps his promises. He is compassionate and he is all-knowing. So you would think Moses, who undoubtedly heard the stories of God growing up, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who I'm sure on times had encountered the Lord's, at least his presence in some ways, there as a refugee for 40-some years, and now has encountered the Lord in all his glory, would say, yep, sign me up. That'll be sufficient. <laughs> and yet, 
Moses blew it years ago when he tried to deliver one of his own people. And there's no doubt that the past defeats and the humiliation are ringing loud and clear as God is speaking. And you see that because Moses is going to ask two questions. The first of these in verse 11 is, who am I? Notice what he says in verse 11. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Are you kidding? I mean, of all the people you're asking me? He replied, surely I will be with you, and, and this will be a sign to you that I have set you, will bring your people out of Egypt, and you and they will serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to, to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God just told Moses who he was. Did you catch that? Verse 6. I am the God of Abraham. I, uh, and, and God says, well, I am that I am. And he said, you must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, you must say that to the Israelites, the Lord. And here it is, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial from generation to generation Go and bring together the elders of Israel and say to them, and he'll give some instruction here, but let's look first at these questions. The first is, Moses' first problem is, hey, you know who I am, right? <laughs> you have to be kidding. First of all, you're asking me to go to Pharaoh. I disgrace the Egyptian royal family, right? That's my foster family. You remember I was raised by them. I'm a fugitive. And you're wanting me to go to the most powerful man in the world and ask for his entire workforce to leave? You, you must be nuts. But it's not the only objection in the who am I, because he said, Moses is also saying, the, who am I to appear before the Israelites? For many, I'm an Egyptian more than I am an Israelite. And all I've done is lead my father-in-law's sheep. I didn't take Colin, our course on From Good to Great. I, I've not read these books. I've not taken these courses. You're asking me to lead a group of people? I don't think so. And notice what the Lord says in verse 12. I love it. Watch this. He, the Lord replies, I will be with you. Reminds me of the kids when they're really little, when they were little, uh, they a little concerned that the closet door wasn't all the way closed and there wasn't anything under the beds, right? The boogeyman, right? You remember those days maybe? And what does a dad on Father's Day remind their kids? Hey, I'll take care of it. Boogeyman's got to come through me, right? That's what the Lord's saying to Moses. What are you worried about Pharaoh? <laughs> I'm the God who's made all these promises. I'll take care of this. In fact, he also says, kind of like a dad who says to uh, their child who's maybe in a, in a musical or, or in sports, hey, I'm in the bleachers, I'm in the, in the auditorium, I'm rooting for you, and when you're done, we're going to Dairy Queen. Well, that's the idea here, because what's the Lord say? Not only am I with you, I'm going to give you a sign, and you all are going to come to this very spot and worship me. You say, well, 
how's that a sign when it's yet in the future? Because it's as good as done for the Lord. This is what we're going to do. And by the way, did you note what God is saving the Israelites from? Is for his glory. He's not giving them strength and a, or protecting them so that they can boast in their own strength or in their own accomplishments. He's not providing all of these resources so that they can become independent. He's doing all of this so ultimately they can come and worship him on Mount Horeb. <laughs> wow. Well, Moses isn't done because after he gets the question of who am I, he then says to the Lord, who are you? <laughs> and this becomes dangerous ground. And scholars debate exactly how God is responding to Moses. Uh, you know what's interesting? We're going to see later no one asked Moses, who sent you? That question is never raised. Moses is raising issues that will never come up. Isn't that just like us <laughs> with the Lord? Or, this has nothing to do with it. You don't see the big picture. And so there, there raises three interpretive problems here with this text. And there's more than three, but three that we're going to look at. And the first is, who doesn't know God's name? Is he talking about the Egyptians, the Israelites, or is he talking about himself? And I would argue with several other commentators that Moses is in great doubt. He's wanting to shore up, uh, okay, I just saw this burning bush. I'm trying to compute all this. Who are you again? <laughs> Am I, you're asking me to do this, so can you verify what I've seen? Again, God already told him, in fact, four times he will tell him in this chapter alone, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he needs to be reminded. Also, in an Egyptian culture, gods were associated with certain things. There's Osiris, uh, Bess, the list goes on of these gods associated with frogs and cats and crocodiles, etc. But God is not identified with any of this, is he? In fact, when the Lord responds in verse 14, you have a very powerful statement, and it's debated on how do you render this phrase, I am who I am. It's four Hebrew letters. Here it's a verb. Later it's rendered as a noun, and that's seen in verse 15 when the text says, you must say to the Israelites, the Lord, or you may have in your English version, Yahweh. This tetra grammaton, these four letters, and how we render them is very difficult, more so the verbal form, which you see in verse 14. How do we render this? Some scholars argue it's who causes to be what is. That's what you'll tell them. I think it's more of I will be who I would be. In other words, don't mess with me. I am God. I am in charge. I am the absolute. I am the source. I am the one who defines all things. This is who I am. Whew. When we get to the plagues, that's just reiterated to the Egyptians who worshiped frogs, who worshiped the Nile, etc. What God is, it's a visible demonstration. I am God. There is no one else. Garrett, in his commentary, pins these powerful words. He says, his, that's God's identity, is not tied to any shrine, cult, city, people, or title. 
He exists independently of all things and is the only being for whom existence is part of his essence. Everything else is contingent on him. In simplest terms, he is the one eternal, all-powerful God. That's what Moses is to tell to the Israelites. Who sent you? The God of the universe, the awesome one. No wonder in the first two commandments we're not to have anything else before God and we're not to blaspheme his name. God takes his name very seriously. Thus, to trivialize his name via a nonchalant reference to God in a casual conversation or to relegate the term as an explicitive or a knee-jerk response to a surprise is to blaspheme the sovereign God who takes his name very seriously. I hate to hear, oh God, thrown out as if it was nothing. What's worse is to hear Christians say it. We serve a God who is holy, <laughs> and he takes very serious his name. Piper writes, therefore it is a cosmic outrage billions of times over that God is ignored, treated as negligible, questioned, criticized, treated as virtually nothing, and given less thought than the carpet in people's houses. <laughs> this is our God. This is the Holy One. Our language must reflect the reverence for the one who is first, foundational, and utmost importance. And so, Moses gets a little <laughs> shaken up, I think, by God saying, you wanna know who I am? I am who I am. That's who I am, and that's who you'll tell them, and they're not even gonna question it. And that leads us to the third interpretive question here is, is God rebuking Moses at this point or is he simply providing a response? It would seem that this is more of a response at this point. One commentator writes, Moses asks after God's name and Yahweh responds by providing not a label but a theology. God has instructed Moses that he alone is the omniscient one, meaning all-present. He's the all-knowing. He's the all-powerful. This is the one they are to worship. So, any other objections, Moses? <laughs> we, we took care of who you are and who I am. Now let me give you the instructions, and that's what we see in verse 16. Go and bring together the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me the God of Abraham, here it is again, Isaac and Jacob, the one who's made covenants, the one who's kept his, his promises. This is the one who has observed and knows all things and in his timing has brought this to this point. I have attended carefully to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt and I have promised that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Parasites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders will listen to you. <laughs> the Lord even says how they're gonna respond. They're gonna listen to you. And then you and the elders of Israel must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The Egyptians had done that with other people groups. It was not an unusual request. 
Now, you say, well, that's a little deceptive because aren't they gonna cross the Red Sea and leave? At this point, this could be more of a test on, 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 the, on Pharaoh because look, in, look at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even under force. This is, <laughs> we're gonna show the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, Moses, and of the Egyptians in verse 20. So I will extend my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders and I will do among them and then after he will release you. I will give this people favor with the Egyptians so that when you depart, you will not go out empty handed. Every woman will ask her neighbor and the one who happens to be staying in her house for silver items, gold and clothing. You will put these articles on your sons and on your daughters, thus you will plunder Egypt. God's pulling out a paddle. It has holes in it and it's very thick. <laughs> and he is going to discipline Egypt like they've never been disciplined at this point. Let's look at this instructions that has been given to Moses. Notice that the author uses the speech to show that from God's perspective, the way is clear. The entire plan is laid forth. Moses, you don't have to worry about figuring out what's gonna be done. This is how it's gonna be done. Here's what you're gonna say. Here's how they're gonna respond. I've taken care of everything. You just lead. <laughs> Pretty easy, huh? Right? We, we, we've addressed all of this. Verse 20, 21, interesting in this process of disciplining Egypt the law required in Deuteronomy, later in the Mosaic law, it required that servants who were freed should not leave empty-handed. So God is making sure these servants do not leave empty-handed. They are going to devastate Egypt by taking all the goods. So the next time your neighbor comes over to borrow something, make sure they're not leaving anytime soon, right? And that's the idea here. And despite all of this, as you come through, we're gonna see Pharaoh refuses to listen to what God has. And even the Israelites are gonna have trouble as we're going to see. And yet, what did Genesis 15, 14 say? The Lord said, I will punish, he said this to Abraham, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. The Lord knew. The Lord knew. He made a promise to Abraham way back. And that's why I think God keeps reiterating, I am the God of Abraham. Don't you remember the promises I made to Abraham? I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna carry forth. And unfortunately, time can erode our confidence in the Lord. It can foster amnesia on who God is and what he has accomplished. Sometimes it only takes four days. Sometimes it's four years, but can you imagine 400 years? We must not forget God's provision in the past. If you need to put a big rock in your front yard as a stone of remembrance, this is what God has done for us as a family. Let me give you three principles there in your notes. The first of these, the Lord works through ordinary human beings to accomplish his work. Think about it. He could have used angels. He did not need Moses. <laughs> I can assure you. Yes, he's invested a lot in Moses, but he doesn't need him. Allowing God to use the ordinary for the extraordinary. And you may be sitting this morning, some of you young people saying, I don't know what God has for me. Hey, 
let's just do a little journey through scripture. We have an eccentric carpenter named Noah, a Moabite widow named Ruth, a priestly orphan named Samuel, a little shepherd named David, a milk toast prophet named Jonah, a loudmouth fisherman named Peter, a self-righteous murderer named Paul. It's not what we bring, it's what God will do in and through us, right? The Exodus did not depend on the competence of Moses, one scholar writes, but on the presence of God. Joshua 1, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can say, oh, that's great, Hophidus, that was for the Israelites. Well, let me give you Matthew 28. Jesus told his disciples, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? No, I'm with you. And the great Puritan Thomas Watson, I love, he writes, God commands nothing but what is beneficial. O Israel, what doth the Lord require thee but to fear the Lord and to keep his statues, which I command thee this day for thy good. To obey God is not so much our duty as it is our privilege. <laughs> it is our privilege. Moses, you, you have an unbelievable opportunity. Close your mouth. Just let God speak. He's instructing you everything you need to know. And unfortunately, it gets worse. We'll get, next week, we'll see some more. Uh, letter B in your notes. When it, come, when it seems that God is nowhere to be found, we need to remember he does see, he does know, and he does care. Ask the Israelites. Oh, since Moses has fled, at least one generation has died under the burden of slavery, countless injustice and oppression. Despite what they may have been taught and what they believe and might think, God was observing and he was listening. He wasn't silent. He wasn't the old man who wound the, wound the clock and just wringing his hands hoping everything turns out okay. No, 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 no. God was intimately involved. They couldn't see it, but he was. Or what about Jochebed, Moses' mother? Her dreams and hopes were dashed when she heard the news Moses had fled. Did she ever know that he was still alive? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. What she might have thought was done, God was not finished with her son. The incredible circumstances surrounding his birth and his upbringing were no coincidence. God had a plan and he was working. Sinclair Ferguson writes, a wrong view of God leads inevitably to a failure to enjoy and grow in his grace. Failure to appreciate his love, his kindness, his generous heart leads eventually to a life which bears no fruit and makes no progress. The lesson is clear. If you would grow in grace, learn what grace is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> the Lord is good. When it seems that God is nowhere to be found, he does see. And the final point in your notes is a proper view of God distills, distills the greatest fear and dismisses the most insurmountable problem. Moses started with his eyes on himself and not the Lord, and he failed, and it cost him 40 years. But God is still working. God was still maneuvering, working through Moses' life. If he could take care of these sheep, he could take care of God's flock. Now that the Lord appears and tells Moses that he goes before him, Moses can only see the impossible rather than God who is of the possible, right? 
And there's a quote at the bottom of your notes, which just uh, this Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks, I, I love this statement that he makes. And it just summarizes, I think, chapter three so well. God has in himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Perhaps this morning you feel like Moses, you've been wandering for a long time. Or you feel like the Israelites and you keep crying out to God and you don't hear an answer. Like, God, where are you in all this? Well, the Lord says, I am who I am. I am the absolute. I know all things. I go before you. If you don't know God as your Savior, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not repentant of your sins and turn to him, today is the day. Taste and see that God is good, that he walks with us. If you know the Lord and you're struggling in your walk with him or just feeling the burdens of life coming heavy upon you, reflect on Exodus 3. We have a God who sees all things. He goes before and he knows the end. Father, we thank you that you are the good God. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're a God who enters into covenants and promises, ones that we, the other side of, the, of this covenant, don't deserve, but you do it for us, and we thank you. Father, I know there's some this morning that hearing these words is difficult because they, like Moses, feel as if they're wandering aimlessly, attending a mindless job that goes nowhere, and yet you know, and you're working. And so, Father, I just pray that uh, you'd make your presence very real to them today. For those that are under the burdens of life, whether it's a wayward child, whether it's a job issue, whether it's financial, whatever the case may be, Lord, I just ask that you would intervene and work in their lives. Father, we thank you that we know the end and there's a day coming when your son will return. Lord, help us to be found faithful. We know who we are in you and we know who you are. And so may we bask in that knowledge today. In Jesus' name.